this is Jordan Van Trump with Farm Tank. Farm Tank is an organization I formed for individuals and business owners to learn the latest in innovation, execution, and motivation. I believe there's a huge demand for hearing how others have become successful in life. I'll be traveling the world talking to some of the most influential CEOs and founders to help everyone learn and be more successful in their near future. The agricultural community has been extremely grateful to me and my family, so I'd like to do the same for everyone else and share my insights with you. With that, coming to you live with Farm Tank, Jordan Van Trump. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Stretch. Stretch grew up an artist, but has always had the mindset of an entrepreneur and has always enjoyed food. Stretch attended the Kansas City Art Institute for an undergrad and went to earn his Master's of Fine Arts at Virginia Commonwealth University. Shortly after graduating in 1990, he opened his own sculpture studio in the Crossroads Art District. Then in 2004, he opened his first restaurant called Grinders. Since then, Stretch has even appeared on Food Network's Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives, Guy's Big Bite, Cutthroat Kitchen, Guy's Grocery Game, He's had multiple appearances on ABC's Extreme Makeover Home Edition and many more TV shows. Stretch is currently the visionary creator for Grinders. With that, I'd like to welcome Stretch to the show. Well, thanks for having me. Wow, what what a wonderful introduction. It sounds really good. I'm doing okay. <laughs> <laughs> yep, you're doing all right. Yeah, um, pretty crazy story. I was eating down at uh, Stretch's place called Grinders probably about a month ago, and he was working on some stuff outside next door and I went inside and I was with my buddy and I'm like, I think that's the owner of this place and I've been dying to meet him. Like I I've done tons of write ups, like I said, on uh grinders and whatnot, love the food, family loves it. But uh went back out there, started to talk to him a little bit and I'm like, Hey, will you want to do a podcast with me? And here we are. Well, bam, just like it's that easy. We're that approachable at Grinders, you know. And for your listening, <laughs> yeah. you're listening, uh, your people out there in Internet world, all the Grinders are in the Kansas City area. So you got the original one you're referring to downtown Crossroads, Kansas City, Missouri. And we have Lenexa. We have Lawrence, Kansas, which is their newest one we opened up last year. And we have Leavenworth. Uh, so there's the four main ones next. So we have a Grinders at the baseball stadium this year that's just making cheesesteaks. Have you been out there for that? Uh, I was at the at the Royals. Yeah, at the Royals. The, I'd like to say they're a winning team. Um, they suck this year, but we support them. They're our local boys, and uh, while you're out there cheering them on, you know, jamming cheesesteak in your face. <laughs> Man, I, sh- I was out there Saturday. I had no idea it was out there. I was looking for some good food. That would have been my go-to spot. Out in right field, man. We're holding down the corner. Oh, well, alrighty. Next time I'm out there, I'm heading that way. There you go. Well, um. Let's just start this podcast off by uh, you telling our listeners who's been the most influential person in your life. Ooh, the most influential person in my life. Um, Probably a couple of my teachers. One guy was named Dale Eldred, who was my teacher at the Kansas City Art Institute. He was a sculpture chair, and he was a guy other than, you know, directly my father, um, uh, outside of uh, growing up outside the family. He was probably the most influential. He was a sculptor. He was an architect. He was a visionary um, and really showed me the way of building and seeing other than the way I already had. Good deal. Um, our listeners love learning about real people, stories behind their success. Um, could you tell our audience a little bit about your early years, perhaps maybe a couple of defining moments that impacted your trajectory? Oh, man, I'll tell you, I'm not sure if I've been 
successful or not, every day I wake up with a big smile on my face, I'll tell you that. That's the key to it all. And uh, my early years, all making sculpture in and out of um, restaurants and bars so I could make artwork during the day, and then I worked in restaurants and stuff at night. I've had a job ever since I was in third grade uh, delivering newspapers or cutting grass or shoveling snow or organizing the kids in the neighborhood to sweep people's houses out, do whatever it took to uh, make some money. Um, whether it was, you know, not necessarily survival back then, but just to do things. Um, I've always had somewhat of a work ethic, and I think a lot of people um, work their butts off all the time. They just don't necessarily work smarter. And I'd have to say, you know, some of those influences of people have taught me to work smarter, and time management is probably the key to everything. Just mindlessly working along isn't going to get you anywhere, and learning from mistakes are really the keys to... I think anybody's success. Learning from mistakes, time management, you know. You have to put in the time. But be mm-hmm. smart. I hear you. Yeah, I hear that constantly. I'm always getting harped on, yeah, or my dad. He's like, <laughs> yeah, son, I, uh, I get you're working hard. I, I see that. But let's uh, try working smart today. Let's yeah. My dad, you you know, you say, <laughs> my dad would say, he was a business guy, he says, you need to save money for a rainy day. So my response was, all right, Dad, I'm moving to Arizona. He said, why? I said, they have less rain. Uh, so that was <laughs> the way I dealt with stuff. That's a good you one. Know? I'm going to use that one. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm guessing you focused on sculpture in college? Yeah, so I left high school. I was, you know, in the creative side of high school. I didn't really fall into the jocks. I played soccer. I had soccer scholarships. And then I was the art guy, and I was in the music a little bit here and there. So I was kind of, and I wasn't a big partier, but I partied. And, you know, I fell into all the different categories. I didn't have this, like, one clique that I would hang out with. Uh, and so, you know, art school for me was pretty cool deal. Um, I could think outside the box, which is what I really needed to do. And school just wasn't my, my bag, really. And high school I did okay. I didn't do great. Um, and I found out later the big problem I had in high school was I used a highlighter. I used a black Sharpie for a highlighter, so it didn't really help. Um, <laughs> ha-ha, don't you have, like, a laugh machine you can put on that? Um, <laughs> <laughs> Need one. little soundtrack. <laughs> big crowd uh, in the So, background. yeah, you know, it was one of those deals I wanted to get out, and art was going to be a cool thing that I was able to express myself with. And I wanted to design toys. And that was uh, something that was really cool to me. I loved building stuff with my hands. I didn't know anything about sculpture back then or really design. I just knew I wanted to make toys. And Kansas City Art Institute had a campus out here, and uh, that's where I wanted to be, on a campus with other like mine. And then once it clicked, you know, it took over my life. And, you know, I made art for 25 years every day all over the world. Art's taken me all over the world. Now food does. And, um you know, I've always hated galleries um, and, you know, what goes on with galleries and how much percentage they take. And uh, so when I figured out a way to still be creative every day without having to deal with a gallery is kind of the path I followed. So I still get to build mm-hmm. cool stuff and private commissions, but now I do it for my restaurants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I was doing some research on you. And I know you went to Virginia Commonwealth, too, and got a master's degree there, but uh, what I found most interesting was you hooked up with a rock and roll band called, is that called G-W-A-R or G-War? How do you pronounce that? <laughs> war. War. G-W-A-R. War. Pronounced War, yeah. 
Warren's War, uh, right. Blood Spewing Acts Well and Rock and Roll Performance Band. They're still out performing. Um, we were all in art school together. They had a studio right next door to a bar where I worked. And, you know, I was welding. I was a rock and roll repair man. You know, so I'd work in the bar at night. And then we'd go back, whether it was Tool or the Chili Peppers or Faith No More, and they had a broken trailer or something like that. We'd go back to my studio and weld them up. And, uh, you know, we'd party. And Guar had some tour buses they needed to build back then and trailers. and some cool props, and uh, I was fortunate to get a chance to work with all those guys, and still very good friends, and I'll tour with them here and there, and, uh, you know, it, it was uh, another eye-opener that actually I got on MTV in 1990 for long-format video for stuff I built and in, in costume, you know, so early years of rock and roll and performance stuff was a lot of fun. Just cool stuff's stuff. interesting to me. I follow that track for a little while, you know, learn something. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, after that, you went on to open your sculpture studio in 1991, right after you graduated. Um, tell us a little bit about this studio and maybe one of the biggest failures you learned from when you started that studio. Uh, opening my studio was my biggest failure. <laughs> no, you know, it, it's one of those things. So I got invited back to Kansas City to work at the Art Institute. I worked under Dale, and uh, unfortunately that Professor Dale, who was my mentor as well, uh, fell to his death in 1990. I was working at the Art Institute, and uh, we were evacuating for the flood of 91, and uh, he died. Um, and uh, so I still had my studio going, and um, we started a gallery called Zone Gallery. It was the third gallery in the crossroads back then that opened, and a lot of the alternative stuff, grungy stuff, was all done in the West Bottoms or in other parts of town. But the crossroads was starting to change and gentrify. And so what the crossroads location did is we, you know, I had a big studio with the gallery in the front. We could open up the door and our collectors could drive by and see that it was safe compared to some of the other locations where um, a lot of the galleries were in the West Bottoms and stuff. They were kind of creepy and kind of scary to other, um, you know, the collectors just didn't want to go there, for instance. So it was a little rough. But, you know, we didn't have heat. We didn't have air conditioning, and, you know, to be honest with you, I still don't have air conditioning in my studios. You give up certain things, um, loved ones and everything else to, to make art and to do it on the scale we do. And, you know, it's, I, I can't – I don't really look at failures, and I don't really understand failures because I don't know any better. All I do is know how to make stuff. And so I didn't really know if I was failing or doing well. Um, and still to this day, I don't think I fail. I mean, there's definitely some days that are better than others as far as sales and things go. But I don't really have a failure day. Um, and people ask what my plans are in the future, and I pretty much live day to day. And what my 10-year plan is, I don't know what it is. It's just uh, something comes up, I kind of wing it that way. And I've just always been too stupid to close things probably when they should close and too hard-headed uh, to close or change my mind. Um, now, when it comes to learning, you get smarter about it. But... Uh, as far as the studio goes, there's been no failures in my art career at all. Uh, you know, I've applied for hundreds and hundreds of commissions around the world and I've gotten none of them in a sense. Uh, so you can look at that as, you know, it's not a failure if you attempt to do something. When things are out of your control, uh, things that I can't control, it's not a failure to me. You have to do it and you have to try and you have to attempt. So I don't have failures. Failure is not really, you know, one of my terms I use almost hurts saying it. Yeah, that's a different, uh, definitely a different outlook. I usually ask, I try to, this is kind of an entrepreneur-based podcast, and 
I try to ask people uh, failures they learn from, but uh, definitely a different outlook. Definitely liked it. Um, tell us a little bit about your large-scale sculptures you've done as of late. I know you did one for H&R Block. I read and did one with Woods Weather. What, have, uh, what kind of sculptures have you been working on? So, you know, my, my medium sculpture, I've been, I won't say pigeonholed as a steel artist, um, but I make large-scale sculptures, and I used to use a lot of glass in my work. Um, it was one of those mediums that was opposite of wood or opposite of steel, yet in steel, it's made the same way. It's, it's a raw ingredient that's put through heat in order to make it, and so you had this nice combination of materials. One was real fragile, and one was pretty industrial. So combining these elements was pretty exciting to me. And for me, the scale of the work happened because I love to, you know, see things on a landscape on, uh, on, on a larger, you know, for at 60 miles an hour, 80 miles an hour from a distance. It wasn't always like on a microscopic level, like let's just talk about a piece of jewelry or something small. It was on these large areas and vast plains or in an architectural setting, and it was like hood ornaments, if you will, to, to a building. So when I've gotten to do these large-scale commissions, I mean, I've helped other artists build, you know, 100-foot sculptures. Um, some of my other mentors, John Henry, great fabricator, great sculptor, uh, Mark DeSouvro, who makes great big I-beam sculptures. I've gotten to work with some, some greats that are out there as well um, in order to see. But it became a visual language for me to when I draw in my head or actually on paper or on the computer now or however I'm doing it, they exist in space. They don't really necessarily have a gallery or pedestal in mind. They, they exist in the world, and I see them on landscapes necessarily rather than just uh, on, on a pedestal. So creating the small maquettes or smaller pieces, um, they're not just always pieces to be blown up to be large, uh, but you know, they're visually spatial concerns where human interaction can participate. And that's why they were always on a large scale because it reacts with human participation, human scale, not just looking at something on a wall or on a pencil. You can't move in and out it unless you're just using your eyes. I want people to be able to physically walk through, ride through, drive through, touch, climb, and become a part of. And that was one of the reasons why I started building these large-scale pieces. I love, you know, tree forts. You know, I, I like the spaces they occupy. Um, it's a unique concern. The problems you start running into when you're building in your head or you're drawing is gravity doesn't work on paper. You can draw and design anything, but then you have to get this thing to stand up and handle wind loads and snow loads and rain, sleet, you know, weather issues, people, cars, whatever it's going to be, um, and then still maintain a visual presence at the same time. Man, that was a Yeah, makes battle. sense. <laughs> yeah. yeah, everyone out there um... – if you, I, I understand it. My sister's an architect at uh, University of Arkansas right now. She's got a few years left, so I get that. Uh, I get that open-minded babble uh, weekly. There you go. So, but uh, everyone out there listening, if you didn't understand it, feel free to go out there and look it up. It's uh, definitely a different level of thinking, different type of thinking. Um, I studied arts in college as well, so kind of understand where you're coming from on that. So that yeah, made sense to me. No, but. It helps. And you know, art's not just for the uh, you know salon, kind of like where coffee, beer, and wine is. You know, I want the common person to see it and be part of it. It shouldn't just be locked behind closed doors. 
And, you know, yeah. doing large-scale stuff is kind of hard to do that way, you know, just behind a closed door. Yeah, speaking of a little different level thinking, what's what's the best tool you've taken away from being an artist and uh, used in running a business? In other words, say, what tool do you have um, that others may not have because they haven't practiced art or worked with artists like you? Um. You know, I had a graphics artist once that worked for me that when we'd sit down and we'd do the graphics and layout and everything like that, she pretty much told me that everything she learned in art school, I wanted to do opposite. Um, and it's just because I see differently. So going through art school or going through any of the creative process, I'd say, allows you to see things differently um, than if you just went through a business school or just a culinary school, for instance. Looking out from the outside in, and then from the inside out, you have a wider vision. You're not so focused on just making a sandwich, in a sense. Um, so the creativity side and the open-mindedness of being an artist and seeing and understanding people and things, I think, plays a major role in all of our restaurants. It's not just one way or different. It's a different environment. It's a different mm-hmm. uh, experience that one has let you be unique yeah it's all about being unique and you know we have mm-hmm. four or five grinders now and every one of them is different but same great food and same great service so it's mm-hmm. difficult at the same time and you know now a franchising they're saying well how are you going to make everyone different well the way i look at it is like how does harley davidson do everyone differently you know everyone should be different and unique and become destination locations uh, I don't want to have a bunch of grinders that are like a Cracker Barrel or a TGI Fridays or a Lone Star Grill. You know, I want them all to be different and all to be unique. So mm-hmm. you, you go in and have a different experience at some place. So, you know, that's it. You know, it's, it's being, you know, uh, you know it, you're looking at it from all different vantage points. Oftentimes when you're so close to something, you also don't see it. I don't have to be in my mm-hmm. restaurant every day. I don't run my restaurants every day. We have 140, 150 employees that handle everything, and I like to come from the outside in. Uh, I don't want to be doing it all day long. It doesn't interest me to do the same thing over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, tell, I, I've heard of, I've obviously heard of the your guys' hot sauces and love the wings you guys make, but uh, I just wanted to learn a little bit more about... Uh, about the sauces I didn't know but they've won looks like they won over 50 awards and honors um, one at the New York City Hot Sauce Expo People's Choice Awards um, it's appeared yeah. on 60 Minutes <laughs> I read you're in Whole Foods what's uh tell us a little bit about the sauce so our hot sauces were developed for grinders um, we have a whole hot sauce line we have our wimpy our molten BRW our near death and our death nectar, and then we also have our barbecue sauce and our barbecue rub. So it, it happened out of necessity. And the BRW, which stands for banana rat wing, I actually invented when I was cooking for the troops uh, down in Gitmo. And believe it or not, they just didn't have any good hot sauce, and they had some mangoes that I mixed up, and we had some habaneros. And so that's where that flavor profile actually derived from. And, you know, we sell these sauces. We're probably in about three or 400 locations around the country around the world, actually, at this point. We have sauces everywhere. But I needed a sauce that would complement our food and never overpower. And then at the same time, I needed a sauce that would totally 
overpower our food, um, but it was still enhancing. I love wings. I loved eating hot wings. But you'd go out and eat a hot wing somewhere, and you say, how hot is? And this cute little, you know, waiter waitress would come over and say, oh, it's nuclear, it's atomic, you know, and it'd be like Frank's Red Hot and Butter and some cayenne, and it was <laughs> worthless. So, you know, I'd always order the hottest stuff. And finally, I just said, you know, screw this. I'm going to make something really hot that will just floor you and, you know, and put you down. So that's where our death nectar came from. And it, it has espresso and it has gut, uh uh, what is it? It's got a uh, ghost pepper extract, goat pepper powder. It's got habanero mash in it. It has espresso. It has squid ink in it. And the color is pretty much black. And we made it black so that when it's on the line, the guys and girls cooking it, uh, don't put the wrong sauce on something else. Near death is kind of red. Um, and that is a couple levels lower. It's um, got uh, habanero mash. Um, it's got a little more oil, uh, vinegary taste to it. Then we get into our BRW. Molten is the same flavor profile as our Wimpy, uh, which has mango, it has habanero mash, uh, the Wimpy has the cayenne mash, so it's a little lighter on the, the SCOBY ratings. And, yeah, we've won all sorts of awards. We've won SCOBY awards, we've won art awards, and all of our graphics. We hire different graphic artists, different artists in town, graffiti artists do our labels. We do little competitions for that stuff. So it's, uh, it's put us on the map on hot sauce. Uh, we were on 60 Minutes up there with Tabasco on hot stuff from one of our festivals as well. And, you know, some of the greats have eaten it, and we sell a lot of it all over the place. And I highly suggest if you try the Death Nectar, um, just like the restaurant, try it with a toothpick first. <laughs> so. Yeah, I have not tried it yet because they're like, this will light you on fire. I'm like, it sounds like it. I don't I don't know if I'm ready, but I might have to try yeah, it next say, time I go in. <laughs> we, tell, we tell people it'll burn you twice and sometimes burn a loved one. <laughs> yeah. Um, about the hot sauces, though, I was, I'm just trying to figure out how it uh, blew up so fast. Is it, You think it's because the sauce is that good, or is there some tricks to marketing when it comes to something like this? Or Well, you know, you can have the best product in the world, but if you don't get it out there, no one's going to know about it. So whether you're doing advertising campaigns or marketing it, it all comes down to it. We uh, just happen to have a restaurant where we bring 300,000 people into it a year. Um, so they see the sauces. Again, we put it in shows. We went to those uh, hot sauce festivals. We had our tent out there. We were at you know, Fiery Foods in Albuquerque several years in a row. We got awards. We won awards. Um, they got in newspapers and magazines. Um, but you yeah, have a faith that goes with it, which is me, and you know I'm kind of a character at the same time. So we're pushing our product physically as well as we brought someone on board in the marketing side and literally was cold calling people, um, you know, dozens of people a day at everywhere from barbecue restaurants or um, stores to food stores and everything else to try and get our product on their shelves. And that's a, it's a challenge because shelf space is um, hard to come by. And they Limited. have, so you and have sample packs, and you have the graphics go with it, and the packaging, and, you know, there's a lot of time and money and energy invested in that just for someone to say, yeah, have a nice day, thanks for the free sample, see you later, bye. Or mm-hmm. it's not that the product's bad, but they might have a product that's similar to it. Or uh, maybe they don't, don't like the flavor profiles. Who knows what the reasons are, but you just can't be a winner every time, you know, just like with the arts when we apply for commissions. You know, you send out all your slides or your digital images nowadays, and just because you're shut down doesn't mean your work sucks. It just means they might already have three pieces in their collection that way, or they don't want to deal with the transportation, or, you know, there's hundreds of reasons why 
someone might not want something, but you have to find the reason why to get it to them. So you have to have everything and don't give them an excuse for why they can't take it. It's why they want and how much do they want. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Definitely some good advice. Um, I'm going to transition a little bit into uh, a little bit about not work life but your personal life. But before that, I would just love to know one piece of advice you have for a young entrepreneur like myself trying to start his own business. Well, I guess, uh, you know, I think it goes to whatever business is going to be. I mean, look around and see who's already doing something similar and get as much information out of them as possible. I don't care if, you know, you want to sell shoes or tires or you want to be a painter or be a, you know, whatever it's going to be. Someone else is already be doing it in some form or fashion. Um, I don't, you know, if you're selling pumps or whatever it is, someone's doing it somewhere. Find out how they got there. Do the research who your market is, know your market, understand your market, and then how to get that product or whatever it is to them uh, before you ever do anything. And, you know, obviously if you can do it without spending your own money, do it without spending your money. I haven't been able to. I ended up doing it all myself, and now I'm kind of in the middle of it that way, which has been great. I've just found also over the years partners suck. If you don't need them, don't get them. Cool. Yeah. Um, target market's huge. That's uh, something we see on our end. People don't focus on when they uh, – that's probably the biggest factor when it comes down to if the business is successful or not. What we found is knowing your target market and hunting with a rifle instead of a shotgun. But um, let's move aside from your career a little bit. Uh, tell me from a personal perspective what makes Stretch tick um, – from what it seems like, you're pretty active in the community. You like to give back. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing with KCAC and Kansas City's TIF Commission. Well, I'm no longer on the TIF Commission. That was a short-lived deal. I was on that for about a year and a half, two years. But after the newest mayor came in, he got rid of everybody on the panel, and uh, I just didn't re-sign up for it. Um, this wasn't what I was into right then and there, but the TIF Commission was all about tax increment finance dollars in order to develop the city and they were giving a lot of money away to a lot of different uh, organizations that were doing construction projects that I didn't think needed as much help in tax breaks uh, as they should. The KCACA, I haven't been on their board in years, which is Kansas City Artists Coalition. Uh, I've sat on other boards. I was on Sculpture Magazine board and Sculpture Magazine Sculpture board uh, for several years, um, International Sculpture Center, uh, and, you know, it, it's it's to just push and promote the arts um, in different ways, wherever they are. That was a global concern there. Uh, I've sat on other panels and juried other shows, um, as well as in the food room. So I'm constantly looking to do that kind of stuff. Uh, for the past nine years, we started a celebrity chef group called the Mess Lords, and we travel all over the world and donate our time and cook for the troops. Um, we've served over about 150,000 meals this part through MWR and Navy Entertainment, um, and that's been pretty rewarding, giving back that way to families and uh, those that are serving. So locally, um, you know, I was on boards in the crossroads doing things there, helping develop the crossroads um, to what it is today. Um, so, you know, I'm, 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 I'm busy all the time doing that stuff at the same time uh, with my family and everything else. So uh, not a lot of hours in the day. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, tell us a little bit about your family. I read you got uh, two twin girls, nicknamed the uh, Mugwumps. Is that right? So, <laughs> so you're close. I have a, one of each. I have a boy and a girl. And Okay. Mugwumps. They're seven or six years old now. Um, very cool little kids, and I love spending time with them. Had a great weekend with them just now. My wife is a florist in the Crossroads. She's been there early planning in the Crossroads as well. I think she's been there about 18 years now. Um, I think we're one of maybe two or three married couples in the Crossroads that have separate businesses. Um, and she helped, you know, develop in, you know, the, the Crossroads as well in the early years. And, uh, you know, we were both outgoing. She does a lot for different charities. And as every event that happens in Kansas City, um, we get hit up for art, food, and flowers. <laughs> uh, that's enough to keep you busy, I'd imagine. People just want free stuff all the time and don't understand that there is a cost associated. And not that their mm-hmm. event might not be worth it, but, you know, we get asked, you know, hey, I'm opening a boathouse in Wichita. You know, the Cub Scouts, the football teams, the baseball teams, the soccer teams, the softball teams, every dance, every performance, every, you know, new opening, everybody and their brother wants stuff for free. And, you know, there's mm-hmm. costs associated with it. And then when you say no, you know, they get all blown out of proportion. So we have a certain amount of money um, allotted at each location for grinders that we will donate or give. And if you're 5013Cs, we work with you at the same time. And, you know, it's not just that we don't want to. It's we have to pick and choose whether it's the boys club, the girls club, uh, you know, the LBGT, whatever it is, everybody has a reason. Everybody has a cause. And mm-hmm. I would challenge anybody all week long that people that are asking for the money, I'm glad they're there and I'm glad they're volunteering. But, you know, that's their focus and that's their time. I mean, so I don't care what business you're approaching. Just, you know, be considerate of those people when they do say no, that they might not that they don't like your reason, but they might already gave in. I mean, all my locations do dogs for paws. We do wayside waves. I mean, I, we do five different, you know, animal shelters, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah. at each location, you know, the bicycle people and this. I mean, everybody has a cause, and we're trying to do as much as we You know, Leavenworth has every cause in the world from, you know, wounded warriors and the soldiers and this, I mean, and we try and help as many out as we can. And it's just Good. amazing Good. how many people still hate you for not doing one thing. But again, yeah. I challenge them and say, hey. You only do so much. Well, they don't understand that. They just look at you and call you an asshole. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, what are some of the best places you've traveled? It seems like you definitely get around when it comes to traveling. Oh, man, I've been around the world. Uh, you know, I just got back from Guam and Japan. I've been to Egypt. I really liked Egypt a lot. Uh, probably the most romantic place I've been are like Greece and the, in the islands down there, Santorini. Uh, I've been to Crete. Um, one of my favorite cities in the world is San Francisco. I love San Francisco. It's a great city, great vistas, great people, great food. I love Paris. I used to keep an apartment in Paris. I enjoyed, you know, again, the food. I love Europe. I have a blast in Europe. Um, so, uh, I haven't done much in Eastern Europe over that way. Uh, I've never been really to South America to speak of, but, you know, I do get to travel and I really like Europe, you know, and I've been to every state we have, 50 states, uh, rode my motorcycle to Alaska, um, for my 50th Ooh. birthday. So, you know, our continental U S is a great place. There's a lot of nooks and crannies and a lot of cool stuff to do here. And I think a lot of people mm-hmm. forget that all the time. You know, I love yeah. traveling. I try to take my kids traveling. 
uh, as much as possible. So if anybody has anything to say, I say travel, 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 travel. Yeah, it's fun. I like doing it myself. It's just hard to find the time sometimes, but um, uh, you have to make the time. And yeah. it's too easy not to get in a vehicle and drive it nowadays. Um, yeah, the oh, uh, car's not working, but you have to have the time. And you know, I always found if I wanted to go somewhere, I'd just do a show there. I'd do it, get a residency. That was my deal. Yeah. What about uh, food experiences? Seems like you've done some pretty crazy stuff when it comes to food. I read you slaughtered some goats. Um, we're in there <laughs> shaving some pigs. What's uh, what's some of the coolest experiences you have when it comes to food? Yeah, so I did a gig in Nairobi. Uh, I was down there for a glass residency um, in Nairobi, Kenya. And one of the deals there was to um, – I was partying with the Maasai tribe. And we slaughtered a goat in the headlights of a pickup truck. We drank the blood. That was pretty wild. Uh, you know, I, I like pretty much uh, all food except for things that might have had a job. Well, lungs, eyes, tongues. Just not big fans of it. But I've been in places in the Republic of Georgia where we slaughtered a, a pig up there and had, you know, the old man of the village shaved it. Then we slaughtered it, and I had to teach him how to smoke it. So it's been some remote locations where we've had food um, at the same time, which has been really cool. So just, you know, different food all over the place. I love eating, mm -hmm. just walking through markets in France and having just fabulous, you know, bread and cheeses and salami, you know. Let's, let's transition a little bit into what you're doing with Grinders now. Um, we've talked a little bit about the restaurant, but – Maybe tell us a little bit about um, your target market, what you guys focus on, and all that. Wow. Well, so the market, Kansas City, actually all the grinders, everyone always wants to know who our market is there, and they'll tell you, they're everybody. We cater to everybody at, at grinders. And it's not just, you know, the young people, it's not just the old people. We have kids uh, that want to come in and have their lunches and their dinners and everything else. We serve i tell anybody that eats we feed them and it's just one of those deals man pet you know pizza people love pizza that's that's just it they love our cheesesteaks and we get everybody from frat guys to 75 year old men you know want to come in there and have lunch and dinner we have mary poppins pop in you know do kids parties at our places uh so it's not really just one target market it's everybody that eats that wants to have a good time is who we have at Grinders. Cool. Um, so there's tons of competition in the restaurant space. You see more and more restaurants popping up every day, especially down in the crossroads. That's going nuts. Um, I just want to know how you keep your competitive advantage. Well, that's the hard part, man. That is the hard part of the whole deal. How do you do it? And it's – with service and communication. And they say within five years, 51% of all restaurants will be uh, to-go orders through Grubhub and Postmates and all that kind of stuff. So it's getting more and more difficult. So what we provide is a dining experience. It's not just the food. We want you to come in and have a different experience while you're there rather than just, you know, just getting food. It's a whole dining experience that happens. Yeah, for sure. Where so do you, you constantly uh, have to be working that? Where do you see most restaurants fail? I know 
Um, my parents owned a restaurant in their day. I got friends that owned restaurants. I know a lot of our listeners own restaurants. Um, where do you see a lot of them coming up short when it comes to opening a restaurant? Um, I think they all go into a restaurant thinking they're going to make a lot of money. <laughs> and they just have to pay attention to the details. And, you know, part of that is, you know, half the people are ripping you off all the time and they don't understand food cost and they don't understand, uh, you know, first off, when someone opens a restaurant, it's usually your friends say, hey, you're a great cook. You should go, you should open a restaurant. They're never around for the taxes. They're never around for all the hard work that actually goes on. There's a huge difference between being a good cook and understanding how a restaurant runs. Huge difference. You can be a great chef as well. But if you don't have any clue how to run people and run a restaurant, you're going to fail miserably. There's a lot of hours in the day that people are working behind the scene to make it happen. All the bookkeeping, all the paperwork, it's 10 times the amount that people think that actually has to happen. Just because the hours are on the door from 9 to 5 or 9 to midnight, there's a lot of hours behind that on paperwork. Every employee and the paychecks and the payroll and the taxes and the food, there's 10 times the amount of work going on behind the scenes that they don't even know about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're talking a little bit about uh, people think there's a big chance about to make money in the restaurant business. I just want to pick your brain a little bit on food trucks. I've thought about maybe going into space. I feel like there's some room for profits, but um, – are they the real deal, or are they a lot of work? What's your opinion on food truck? Well, food truck also is a huge. It's a huge thing. You know, it depends on your market and location. You know, Kansas City. You know, you have at least four months out of the year that you can't drive it around because everything will freeze in it. It depends on what kind of food you're selling as well, um, and where you can park. But you know, if you you have to have water on the vehicle, so it means it has to be heated, and then your you know your overflow tank uh, for your sinks and everything have to be heated. So there's some logistical concerns that just get expensive on a food truck versus just, hey, I want to cook hot dogs. You know, uh, you have to have all that stuff to be health safety. Every town in the Kansas City area, uh, you have to have a separate permit. You know, 50 bucks, 50 bucks, 50 bucks starts adding up when you can be on those streets and those areas and in those markets as well. Food truck, are you going to be a breakfast? Are you going to be lunch? Are you going to be dinner? You have to figure that out. And then you have to say, okay, if I'm going to be lunch, I have to be prepped and on location and be able to do it beforehand and say, okay, I'm going to have a food truck. I'm going to cook hamburgers. I'm going to only go out for lunches from 11 to 3 in the afternoon. All right, so your truck costs you 50 grand. Break that down. How much food do you have on board? And, you know, it starts adding up. That means you got to make, you know, $1,000 a day, which covers your insurance, which covers the gas, covers the generator, covers, you know, your couple employees on the truck and one employee, and then all the prep time. So it adds up pretty quick. Starting to make me double think this now. <laughs> yeah, um, I wasn't sure. Something um, you just have to figure all. out, you know. Mm-hmm. I hear you there. A lot of um, unknowns in that. Oh, yeah. I'm sure there is. I mean, dad. we have a food truck. There. It's never hit the road. It's only for events. Yeah. Yeah. You know. So would you, would you advise someone opening a food truck? Or? It depends on the individual. You know, I can't mm-hmm. say, yeah, you'll make a bunch of money. You know, you go, oh, man, it's great. But can you work in a space that's, you know, eight feet? You know, you'll have an aisle down the middle. You have to have two people because you can't take the money. So now you have someone that's got to make at least 10 bucks an hour right there. 
just 10 bucks an hour if they're working on tips, you know, sitting in the front of the truck. Can you stand that close to someone for that many hours, make it work, and make a profit? You know, it just mm. depends on what your food is. You know, what's your food that you're going to sell? Do you have what it takes to be able to do that versus constantly, you know, or being in another restaurant style and drive to the place? And then it's a rainy day, and then it's a sunny day. You know, or, you know do you have the backing to be able to step out of it? You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely makes sense. Um, I saw Grinders Barbecue Team has achieved perfect scores at American Royal. Competed in Memphis and May. We do a big barbecue deal down there. I think we are the team we go with. They got like third place in ribs a few years ago. And I love barbecue. I was just seeing if maybe I could squeeze some secrets out of you on how to make some good barbecue. Who did you cook with down in Memphis and May? Um, it's a guy called Andy Daniels. He does, um, I don't know the guy that cooks for him, but he puts it on, does it all for St. Jude's. Give, we do a big uh, auction donate all the money and stuff to St. Jude's. But uh, I don't think he's doing it this year, but he's done it for like the last 10 years. But right, that's I've like been the first the past time. Couple years. We're not doing it this year either. We did the past couple of years. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, we do competition barbecue. Uh, yeah, we took a perfect score 180 with our chicken last year at the Royal. Ended up fifth, actually. All the top five were all uh, 180s. Um, hmm. You know, it, the, the secret's tenderness, man. It's not just flavor. It's all about tenderness you know, in competition barbecue. So mm-hmm. you got any tips for me or, or are they secret? <laughs> Don't burn yourself. I mean, <laughs> it just <laughs> depends. You, you know, quality ingredients going in is quality ingredients going out. Yeah. So, you know, uh, where do you see grinders in the next three to five years? Well, we're franchising. So that's what I'd like to see, you mm-hmm. know, grinders, you know, another half dozen grinders out about, Mm-hmm. Are you just you know? keeping it uh, Missouri, Kansas area, or are you trying to get outside the state? I'd like to see the first three to five within three hours so we okay. can capitalize on it and keep an eye on it make sure everything's you know, dialed in right. Cool. What is uh, so that, something you know, that's like Manhattan, that? Kansas, that's Lincoln, Nebraska, that's Wichita, you know. Yeah, what's the franchise process look like for you guys? I'm sure maybe some listeners might be interested. Uh, well, you can go to, you know, grinders.com, grinderspizza.com, and there's all sorts of lists on that, uh, on how to get it, the paperwork and everything else. All right, cool. Um, looks like you're opening, you told me you're opening Chance of Social right next door to uh, Grinders and the Crossroads. Um, you're opening XRDS Barbecue, a little pop-up restaurant. Can you tell us a little bit about right. these new places? So Chance's is a coffee shop opening right next door, open today. Um, it's, uh, great coffee. We teamed up with maps, uh, out of the Mexa, Kansas to do our coffee for us. We have great baristas in there and then they're working on the liquor license should be in it probably about 30 days. So we'll have cocktails and everything else. And you'll be able to be outside for the, the concert venue and everything else. And they'll link everything together between all locations over there, which will be really cool. cool. And then the grinders, you know, barbecue will be popping up in the warehouse behind there as well shortly. Okay, cool. What's, uh, so what the, are they going to serve? The coffee side of things. things. I'm sorry? What's the pop-up going to serve barbecue-wise, like all of it, ribs, brisket, turkey? Yeah, and then get a specials. They'll do all the, you know, the competition meats, which is, you know, your, your chicken, your brisket, your, your pork, 
and ribs as well as we'll do some turkey here and there. We'll do some fun stuff, smoked chicken cordon bleu and some meatloaves and just specials. And it'll be, uh, I'll call it Texas style that, you know, you run out, you're out. That's it for the day. It's not going to just mm-hmm. run on. I want to cook it and be done with it. Cool. First come, first I think serve. that's the way to do it. Yeah. When it comes to barbecue anyways. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, uh, let's end with a little bit of fun. Uh, can you finish the sentence for me? Stretch is a pain in the butt. <laughs> <laughs> Just because you're busy? or? Yeah, no, we are. Stretch is busy. Stretch is busy. That's even better. Just right on top of that. I mean, that really is it. Stretch, you know, is a visionary. Stretch is a philanthropist. Stretch sees and stretch does. I come across people all the time that say, I should have, I would have, I could have, and then they never did a, never mm-hmm. did a damn thing. Yeah, can't do like it. My dad, you don't like... take the chance, you know, you never know. Yeah, I hear you there. Um, and then before we wrap things up. as well. <laughs> yeah, I got um, one last question for you. I'd just love for you to tell our listeners one piece of advice or life lesson that's had the most impact on stretch. Man. Do not be afraid to take chances. You have to take chances. You will never know what's going to happen without doing it. Buy those funky pair of shoes. Put your shirt on inside out. Figure it out. Take chances. Cut your hair different. Whatever it's going to be, there's no reason to do the same as everybody else. I hear you. Yeah, that's uh, definitely some good advice, and I appreciate it. But um, I appreciate you doing this call with me. Like I said, I just kind of wung it that one day, and I appreciate you taking the time and doing it. And uh, If there's anything I can do for you down the road, let me know, and I'd be happy to help. Fantastic. Thank you so much. And just send me a link on this, and we'll put it up so everybody's got it. Perfect. I appreciate it. Great, man. Have a great day. Thanks. Yep. yep. See ya. Bye. Bye.